1: I was only around 10, 11 years of age and um, something happened. I went away from home and didn't realise like I'd never been away from home before. And I just completely broke down as a child, which then resulted in me, um, I basically had like a whole 12 months off school. And I just wouldn't leave the house, I wouldn't leave home, I wouldn't leave my mum, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go anywhere, I wouldn't see friends. I'm Rory, I'm a hairdresser from Lancashire. I'm 59 years of age now. Rory lives with a severe form of depression. As I got older, I started really having to use like the um, the doctors for medicine and stuff. When I was about, I would say, from sort of 18 onwards, um, you know, I sort of struggled again then. From a very young age, I relied on alcohol as a crux as well. So by my twenties, I was already using it too much, you know, and basically I first went for help for my drinking in my twenties. So, you know, that was there too, you know, so it was all very mixed up. Depression affects an estimated
2: 5% of adults worldwide. One way to treat the condition
1: is with antidepressant medication. You were just given a drug, basically. You know, and you'd, you'd maybe feel a little bit of respite for a while and then you're back to square one again, you know, you're just down again, you know, and then it's, it's looking for the next thing and the next thing. and. So from a young age, I didn't have any, any faith in them, really. You know, I never had... I never felt like anything was being dealt with. Those
2: who don't respond to this medication need some fresh ideas. One of those fresh ideas that's exciting scientists today comes from the past. 20 years ago, scientists found that another drug offered quick relief from depression, ketamine. This venerable drug has been used for decades as an anesthetic. It's also been widely and illegally used as a party drug. But there's now a growing body of research to show that ketamine could find a new use in treating those people with depression for whom all other avenues have failed. Hello, and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist, Science Correspondent. On today's show, we'll explore the rise of ketamine in the treatment of depression. A growing number of clinics around the world are offering the drug. We'll investigate the science behind the therapy and examine why, despite showing such promise in treating depression and potentially other mental health disorders, the drug still faces some enormous hurdles before it can enter the medical mainstream.
0: Depression is a mental health disorder with biological roots and it probably involves changes in the brain that control our moods. Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor. But the truth is we don't really understand what's going on in the brains of depressed people, but we know it when we see it. They may have little interest or pleasure in doing everyday things, persistent feelings of hopelessness, feeling down or depressed for more than a few days. And this description often doesn't come close to explaining the sort of real depths of misery that people are stuck in, nor the impact that depression has on the people that are around them.
2: Depression is treated in several ways right now. There's talking therapies of various kinds. There's antidepressant medication. Just give us a sense of what's out there at the moment and and how well does any of it
0: work? Well, there's a huge range of medications and most people will have heard of serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. And these are often the things that are prescribed first. You'll have heard of their names before, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro and Generally speaking, most people will get some benefit from these drugs, although it may take time. You could typically wait about two to six weeks before you see an improvement on one of these drugs. But the problem is, is that the first drug you try might not work. And then you may then have to sort of cycle through different medicines, trying to find one that does. And of course, there's a whole bunch of side effects that come with them. Loss of sexual function, um, increase in anxiety at first. And also some people just don't like the way that they make them feel. It kind of numbs you. It's like a sort of sticking plaster on the depression. You can't feel depressed, but you can't feel joy either. So although they're helpful for some people, some people just do not respond at all. Why is that? One of the reasons is genetic. Your genes alter how you metabolise drugs and how you respond to drugs. And although there's no strict definition of what treatment-resistant depression is, you know it when you see it, and clearly Rory had this. And some will say that you need to fail to respond to two antidepressants and your treatment resistance. Others will say four different treatments. But we would think that about 30% of people with depression may fall into the category of loosely said treatment resistant depression. So clinicians and researchers
2: are looking elsewhere to drugs like ketamine. Firstly, can you explain what kind of drug this is and its effects more generally?
0: Well, ketamine is a really old drug. It's used widely as an anaesthetic, as an animal tranquilizer, and also as a party drug. It gives the user a sort of feeling of being slightly out of their own body, and potentially you might get some slight hallucinogenic effects as it distorts your perception of sight and sound. And yes, there's a lot of evidence that suggests it can help people with depression, which is what we're here to talk about today. But what you also need to remember Alok is that when it's being used as a medical therapy the dose is being given a much lower than would have been used by those who are taking the drug recreationally.
2: So this is a case of people having to readjust their expectations from what they might have heard about ketamine. Um, has it been used
0: as a treatment for mental health conditions for a long time? So uh, scientists have actually been studying ketamine and mental health for about 20 years. And we've known that it has this antidepressant effect. But the problem is that it's a generic drug and it's not actually been approved for this use. It's an anaesthetic. And interest in ketamine has been picking up in recent years. And we're starting to see clinics pop up all over the place, America and also in Europe and in Britain. And is it legal? Yes, absolutely. The drug's a legal medicine. But when you are using it to treat mental health conditions, you're doing what's called making an off-label prescription. And that just simply means you're giving the drug for something other than what it was originally intended for. And that's how we sometimes find our new drugs, is we find new uses for old drugs. So patients who are struggling with treatment-resistant depression are now able to book into these clinics for ketamine treatments. And that's how I got in touch with Rory.
1: Ketamine was first mentioned to me by a psychiatrist I was seeing and after being again on lots of different drugs and none of them worked for me and he came to the conclusion himself like you're just resistant to traditional medication and um, I've done all these talking therapies etc etc CBTs and you know and then it was the psychiatrist who had been reading up on the ketamine treatment. And he asked me, would I be interested, you know, and um, if somebody, you know, holds that hand of hope out to you, you know, you, you grab it, you know, because you, you, you've tried so hard, you know, it, it, you'll, you, you, you seriously, you'll go, you won't go for anything, Natasha, you know, it's just, when you've endured and suffered your life and you've lived in basically fear and darkness and, Your life's just consumed by it day in, day out. You know, you go to work and you're acting, if you can go to work, you know. So if anybody gives you a little branch of something that you think you could possibly have a normal life, it's massive, Natasha, you know, it's massive.
0: Did you have any concerns going into it? I mean, were you worried about any sort of side effects or adverse events and things like that?
1: Yeah, obviously, you know, you sort of think like, you know, it's a powerful drug, what side effects are there going to be? I know it sounds silly, but I'd already endured things like, you know, of of other medications that I'd actually had. And I'd actually had seizures. You know, I'd ended up in hospital, I had a really, really bad seizure, and that was off meds and stuff. So I'd already been down a bit of that road, you know, and I mean, there's, there's, there's risks with everything. You tend to sort of think, well, I'll take my chances.
0: To understand how ketamine can help patients like Rory, I spoke to Celia Morgan. She's a professor of psychopharmacology at the University of Exeter in Britain. And she's a leading ketamine researcher.
3: The first evidence of ketamine being a potentially useful treatment in depression came out from a small study in the 80s in Iran. But it was largely dismissed. But then in the early 2000s, there was a small paper published by a group at Yale, with only seven patients with treatment-resistant depression showing these reductions in depressive symptoms in the 24 hours following an infusion. And that really spanned a huge research effort because I think what's so exciting about those antidepressant effects of ketamine happening suddenly was this was really something we'd not seen before because all conventional antidepressants take two weeks to see an antidepressant effect. But these findings with ketamine is that the reduction in depression was immediate and sustained. So it wasn't to do with the acute effects of the drug at peak 24 hours after the drug effects had worn off. So that was really, really exciting. And that's what spends this huge research effort.
0: And when this was discovered, did we have any idea how ketamine might be working? Or do we know now?
3: So when it was discovered, I don't think we really did. I think we've got a fair idea now. I don't know that we're entirely certain. Um, but what we know from animal studies is that in a time course that sort of corresponds to the antidepressant effects of ketamine, you get an increase in the growth of spines. So these are kind of synapses off neurons in the brain, and this relates to increased what we call plasticity. So the ability to learn and make new connections is how we translate it in humans. So we think that's related to the antidepressant effects.
0: As you said, there's been a lot of research into ketamine. What do we know now about Who benefits most from this treatment and how it should be used?
3: So in terms of who benefits most from ketamine depression, we actually don't know that much. There's some emerging evidence that people who've got a family history of alcohol problems might get a stronger antidepressant response to ketamine. And we think that's because alcohol and ketamine have some kind of similar actions in the brain and there might be some genetic predisposition to alcoholism that changes your response to ketamine. There's also other things that have emerged from studies seem to be people with higher numbers of suicide attempts benefit more from ketamine. So it might be a work better in people at the more severe end of the depressive spectrum. There's also quite a lot of research has started looking at ketamine now in different disorders. So the strongest evidence base is really for depression. But there's also some work showing that ketamine may be very beneficial in bipolar disorder. And then I've led a clinical trial looking at ketamine in the treatment of alcohol use disorder and there is some emerging evidence that ketamine might be useful also in the treatment of addiction. Is there anyone
0: who shouldn't use ketamine for treating mental health conditions?
3: Ketamine is a really safe anaesthetic you know it's used around the world it's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines and because it's got a really good safety profile it doesn't slow down your breathing or your heart rate like other anaesthetics and there's actually very few conditions where we would say that you shouldn't use ketamine one in terms of mental health is people with a history of psychosis so things like paranoia and um, delusions hallucinations because there's some evidence that it might worsen those symptoms another group of people with really severe problems with hypertension so high blood pressure because ketamine slightly increases your blood pressure following a, an acute dose of it so that might be dangerous if you had a really severely high blood pressure but I don't think there's a lot of other conditions where we'd really exclude people from treatment
0: Ketamine can be delivered in a variety of ways by mouth, orally, as a nasal spray, there's a drug called esketamine which is delivered this way or it can be delivered by infusion and this is how Rory was treated at the clinic
1: You actually have a cannula fitted and they um bring the infusion through which is done like on a pump you know it's done obviously over time it's over like i think about 50 minutes 45 50 minutes and you you're quite relaxed you know you have to take with you headphones an eye mask meditation music very calm and you can't have anything like with lyrics that are going to make you sad and, and you know and stuff like that so then the infusion starts and obviously you're a little bit nervous because you're thinking, what's going on? Well, to be truthful, the first infusion, it was pretty horrendous. It really was quite, you know, because I've never done any recreational drugs, you know, I don't know what anything like ecstasy or these mind-altering, psychedelic kind of drugs. I, I didn't have any experience with that. The only thing I'd had was like the drink. It was so weird. And it was like out of body. It was like you were looking down on yourself. I felt like I was locked in. I was like in a locked in syndrome. I was never going to wake up. It was just bizarre. Some of the music was like the beachy waters and the tide, and and I was sinking into sand. I was being swallowed into it. When I eventually woke up, which was just amazing in the end, because I just thought I'd never wake up, the first thing I thought was, I ain't having that again. I really did, honestly, I thought, there is no way I am doing that again. I thought, God knows how people take this for enjoyment. And the nurse said to me, is everything okay? And I went, oh my God, I went, that was the most freaky. I said, I was petrified. She said, what was it like? What did you describe it? Well, the one thing that just came to my head straight away, and I'm quite a big fan of Kate Bush. Mm -hmm. One of Kate Bush's albums, The Hounds of Love, is like the ninth wave. This second half of the album is really sort of quite strange. Um, And I felt like I was in a Kate Bush album. You feel like you're in a dream. It was very, very scary. It was very, very weird. And I thought, nah, I ain't having that. I'm not doing it again. I came at my partner, Colin, he said to me, how was it, you know, I went, do there. I went, I'm not going back. And he went, just yeah. wait until you've, you know, he went, how see how you go.
0: So how many treatments have you had?
1: Well, you initially, I think you went for four, I think it was four treatments over like four weeks, like four Mondays or whatever. And then they leave you for so long.
0: But what made you go back?
1: Well, it's really funny because I, I just thought, "Wait, I've got to give it a go. It can't be that bad. I know I'm going to wake up. And then after going for, like, the consecutive Mondays, my head started to feel clearer and lighter. It just wasn't quite as gloomy. Because before, my head just felt on different drugs and that. My head felt... I felt blocked all the time. It was like there was no room, you know, for anything. And am I making sense? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Lots of people talk about how traditional antidepressants sort of stop you from feeling anything.
1: Yeah, that's how I felt. People used to say to me, how do you feel? And I used to go, I don't feel anything. I actually don't feel anything. So, yeah, so I just felt that little bit of something, you know, so that's why I went back. So, so after that, I now go once a month, Natasha. So I've had maybe 16 altogether with the initial four, and then, you know, I've been going for the last 12 months. I was not working. From last November, I've been fine. I've been back at work fully. I couldn't have wished for anything better at the moment and I am getting better all the time and it's not something that's short-term. This has gone on for, like, seven months now.
0: For treatment-resistant depression, ketamine was a huge breakthrough. But I wanted to talk to someone who has had experience giving this treatment for a long time, so I went to Oxford to the very ketamine clinic that Rory attended. Hi. Nice
1: to see you. Nice to meet you. I'm Jason. I'm
0: Natasha. Hi. 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 Rupert McShane runs the clinic, which sits deep inside Warmford Hospital. It's a grand old building set in sweeping gardens on the outskirts of the city. Dr McShane provides ketamine therapies free of charge for some patients in the local area. It's part of Britain's National Health Service. But 80% of the patients travel from much further afield and they must pay for treatment privately.
4: We started uh, offering it as a treatment following a short, small study that we did, looking at um, whether you could give ketamine once a week or twice a week. And we were certainly the first. And there've been only one or two other clinics that have offered any number of patients ketamine. There are a few that have done one, literally one or two, but uh, we've treated now about 400 patients over those 10
0: years. People come from all around Britain and beyond. Some even come from as far as Israel, just to attend this clinic in Oxford. After patients undergo their intravenous ketamine treatment, Dr. McShane's team have a strict follow-up programme.
4: What we do is that we make an arrangement to call the patients a month later, during which time we expect them if they have responded to relapse. And the reason that we do that is because We want the patients to understand what the relapse is, what the effect of the drug is. It helps to give a better understanding of that. And it also helps us to know roughly how long the drug will work for, because that then helps us in the second part of the the treatment, which is the maintenance phase, which is where they have uh, intravenous infusions perhaps once a month or once every two months, depending on how long it lasts for. And then, and this is the thing that we do differently to other places. They have uh, once a week oral ketamine at home on the intervening weeks. And that, the, the sort of analogy here is that uh, depression is a bit like a pipe filling up with sand. And if you've got a long blockage of sand, then the intravenous ketamine is quite good at, at blasting it. Whereas the oral ketamine, which has a lower peak concentration, helps to keep the pipe a bit clear. But it's not as doesn't work quite as well as the intravenous.
0: I asked Rupert how often his patients have as positive an experience as Rory did.
4: The way we do it is that people come and they have between four and six infusions as a sort of what we call an induction phase, meaning that after that period, about 6% of our patients do feel like they're they're sort of much, much better and they go off into the sunset feeling <laughs> uh, like they don't need any more. Sometimes they come back, you know, three or four years later but the majority, about 50% of people, get enough of a benefit that they think that it's worth coming back from more. Okay, so that's not huge, but it's better than the alternatives for these people who've, who've uh, got very treatment-resistant depression. So you know, it's important that people get their expectations in the right place. You know, there's about a 50-50 chance that this is going to be useful for them in the long term.
0: Does anyone not respond at all to ketamine? And given what they've been through so far, what's that like for them to not respond at all?
4: I think that's a very important question. About 10% of people who have ketamine infusions have a very unpleasant experience. So you know, I've certainly had patients who've felt worse at the end of it than they did at the beginning. So it's very important to let people know that that's a risk. The evidence that we've got so far is good for efficacy, short-term efficacy. It's less good for long-term safety. And the the data that we do have on long-term safety are really about S-ketamine, a nasal spray version of of ketamine that's got a license and may become available on the NHS fairly shortly.
0: Psychiatrists also worry about patients self-medicating. One possibility,
4: of course, is that people perhaps young people for whom ketamine is readily available illegally and who have depression or feel unhappy will think that this might be a a way of managing their own problems. And we've done some preliminary work with the Global Drug Survey and found that people who do try to treat themselves with ketamine tend to use higher doses and more frequently than if they were getting it medically, which I think is a worry. And they tend to want to stop and re- or reduce the dose that they're taking. And they tend to be more likely to take other drugs as a form of self-treatment as well, which sort of suggests that, that it's not working. <laughs> um, and so I think that the culture of self-treatment is something that we need to be really quite concerned about.
0: Using the wrong dose can lead to dangerous and unwanted side effects.
4: To give you an example, patients who are having it intravenously typically have 50 to 70 milligrams, something like that. Uh, and that's happening once a month in a sort of maintenance phase. Drug addict would typically take one or two grams a day. So it's, you know, so that obviously when you're addicted, there's a very high tolerance to it. So it's very, very different. And that's the point at which people are starting to get ketamine bladder and more clear cut, very nasty side effects.
0: What is ketamine bladder?
4: So ketamine bladder is where the concentration of the ketamine in the urine in the bladder causes damage to the lining of the bladder and it starts to break down and um, that causes what's called an interstitial cystitis which is extremely painful and people tend to treat their pain with further ketamine oh. so it gets into a vicious cycle. So some people have lost their bladders because you know, it's become so scarred and these are young people who've now got a urostomy, a bag on their that their urine goes out into. So it can be a complete disaster. So we haven't had any of, any problems like that because the doses we use and the frequencies we're we using are so much lower. And that's been a sort of reassuring aspect of the worldwide experience with it, is that it hasn't caused that.
0: There are other issues. One is who's going to gather evidence of the long-term risks and benefits of ketamine. Another is who's going to regulate the use in these clinics. And then there's the question of whether some patients will go on to develop a dependency on ketamine. But overall, ketamine's a really exciting proposition for the treatment of mental health. It's been many decades since a genuinely new type of drug for treating depression has come to market.
2: Natasha, thank you for that. That was really interesting. There are obviously quite a few issues to address with this treatment, but um, in principle, the ketamine clinics you've been reporting on seem to be quite promising, don't they?
0: Yeah, they're really promising. People who have treatment-resistant depression are really out of options. And it doesn't work for all of them, I will say. But for this hardcore of people, particularly those who are suicidal, um, it can be a lifeline. But there are some issues. And I think in the excitement over the potential of this new therapy we just do need to kind of pay a little bit cautious about how we talk about this and the expectations we have and how we present the kind of risks and benefits and you know one issue of course is an access problem and that's in the UK and all around the world private clinics ones that offer psychiatric services alongside are charging thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds and dollars to access this therapy a UK clinic I spoke to charges £7,000. And the clinic that Rory went to, you don't get psychotherapy alongside, so it is cheaper. Rory pays about £195 for an infusion and £45 for the oral maintenance ketamine. And, you know, in total, that's what 240 a month or about $300. And so if you think about how we're going to make this therapy available to more people, we have to ask the question is like, well why are health services not making it free? And in fact, there is a licensed medicine now called esketamine, which is made by Janssen, and that isn't very widely available either, but that's something that health systems could make available.
2: Okay, and we'll explore some more of those uh, challenges that we outlined shortly. Natasha, for now, thank you very much. For almost 180 years, The Economist has championed ways of thinking that are outside the box. Our health coverage is no different. In the current issue, you can read Natasha's article on how companies are beginning to use psychedelic drugs to improve team bonding on away days. The story even features a company that offers ketamine therapy through its corporate health plan. It is, as the title of the piece suggests, the ultimate business trip. You can find that and much more on our website or in the weekly print edition. To subscribe, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. Babbage listeners get a special introductory rate. The link is in the show notes.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
2: On the show today, we've heard why ketamine might succeed where other treatments for depression have failed. But clinics that can administer the drug are few and far between in Britain and in Europe. In America, though, there are more than 100 of them.
5: The use of ketamine to treat depression in the US is very much a kind of budding industry. Daniel Knowles is The Economist's Midwest correspondent. He's based
2: in Chicago.
5: The earliest clinics set up a little over a decade ago in the last kind of five to six years more have opened.
2: Now as part of your reporting you visited the clinic can you just take me through what it was like?
5: Yeah so the clinic I visited was run by a company called the Ketterman Wellness Centers and they have a branch in Naperville which is a kind of suburban city to the west of Chicago and first patients have a psychological assessment to determine you know whether this might be something useful for them then they come into the clinic itself and in a clinic room they'll be injected with ketamine and stay there for a few hours with a nurse or a paramedic present and your typical patient will probably have up to four to six injections over a few weeks
2: And just give us a sense of how much it costs and, 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 you know, how how do people pay for it? Is it something that is covered in insurance usually?
5: Well, it is certainly not cheap. Injections will cost you a minimum of $300 each. And the clinic I visited, it was $449. Most insurers will not cover the use of ketamine for depression um, because it's an off-label use of, of the drug. Though, for example, the Veterans Affairs Administration, which provides health insurance for ex-military people in the US, has began covering some of this treatment for PTSD, that sort of thing. And some insurers, even if they don't cover the actual injections, will still cover stuff like the psychological evaluation or, you know, the paramedic who's there when you have the injections.
2: Do you get the sense that there's still a stigma attached to ketamine because perhaps of its recreational uses and, and and other things like that?
5: So I think at the moment doctors still see it as just a sort of new treatment. are definitely nerves when you know people who may have a history of misuse of drugs themselves as part of their kind of mental health problems whether it's really the right idea to be putting them on ketamine and the clinics that do this are very sort of keen to stress that like the way in which you do this medically is a very it's a lower dose than anybody would do recreationally and it's also in an environment which really isn't you know a party room but yeah I think there's still some stigma there and it will take time before that reduces if it does reduce.
2: Where do you think that ketamine treatments are heading uh, in the future in America then? Is it inevitable that these kinds of clinics will spread?
5: This is not going to go the way of like medicinal marijuana, you know, where you get a card and you can go and pick up ketamine and do whatever you like with it. Um, There probably will be a growth in at-home prescribing. But, you know, this has been 10 years or more since people first started experimenting with it. And it's still very much a a quite small thing. So I imagine in 10 years' time, there'll probably be more clinics around the country offering this and maybe doctors will be more open to it, insurers more open to it. But I, I suspect it's going to remain, you know, a relatively specialist kind of medical treatment just because of the cost of it and the fact that it is like a second line after you've struggled with other treatments.
2: Daniel, thank you very much for your time. It's been really interesting to hear all of that from the American perspective.
5: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: I'm back with Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor. Natasha, we heard there from Daniel about how all of this is playing out in America and some of the issues around access to ketamine. One issue we've mentioned throughout the show is that the drug is being used off-label. In other words, it's being used for a purpose other than what it was licensed for. Why do you think that might be potentially a problem?
0: Well, Because a drug hasn't been approved specifically for that use, it doesn't come with a label that explains how you use it and what circumstances and what the risks and benefits are. And that kind of puts off doctors and patients and those who pay for medicines because there's an additional level of sort of risk involved in using the medicine. And the truth is that we actually know very little about the long-term consequences of using ketamine. Now, over the short term, we've had lots of experience using it as an anaesthetic. The benefits of using these low doses of ketamine for seriously depressed patients are clearly going to outweigh the risk. But it isn't clear whether those who are using this drug in the long term are being exposed to more harm than they should be. And that's why people like Celia and Rupert and actually the Royal College of Psychiatrists really want a register of ketamine patients. And that's something that we need in Britain and we need in other countries as well. And that's where you kind of register the patients who are getting this treatment outside of regular healthcare facilities and where you monitor the outcome. And it also will allow you to be alert to any abuse of ketamine because, of course, ketamine can be addictive.
2: All of that just suggests that, you know, what you need is a set of clinical trials, properly regulated understanding of how these drugs are being used in in different populations. I mean, it just sounds like a clinical trial. Why aren't drug companies trying to seek regulatory approval for these different conditions then?
0: Well, the problem here is there's no financial incentive. And what it means is because the drug's generic, if you're a pharma company and you put it through a trial for, say, treatment-resistant depression, then when you get that approval for that indication, as it's called, anyone can then sell ketamine as a treatment this way. And so you don't recoup the benefits of your investment. So what Janssen did when they wanted to make S-ketamine, this nasal spray, is they actually tinkered with the molecule so that they could patent it.
2: But apart from tinkering with the molecule then, I mean, it doesn't sound like that's always going to be possible. I mean, is there no way around this issue of the fact that ketamine is generic and therefore everyone can sell it. This sounds a bit of like a catch-22.
0: Well, it sort of is. I mean, what I think is the way forward is closer supervision of the off-label use of this drug and some kind of long-term monitoring and trial. And this is just not happening. And, you know, I looked into why not in Britain, actually, and it was rather like a game of pass the parcel. You know, the medicines regulator, the MHRA said, well, look, off-label use of medicines is regulated by a group called the General Medical Council. And the General Medical Council said, well, no, um, this is the MHRA's area. And, you know, the MHRA says, well, we don't regulate off-label privately prescribed products. So it's a bit of an impasse, really. And I don't think it's an impasse that serves patients well.
2: So a classic case is something falling between all the stools. No one wants to take responsibility. I mean, how much also is there a stigma attached to the fact that some people do use it recreationally? And for many people, even listening to this, they might have heard of ketamine as essentially a party drug. So maybe the medical establishment is sort of wary of just associating itself in that respect.
0: That was certainly true a few years ago. I remember um, I reported on ketamine in the US a few years ago, and there was actually a medical board that warned doctors against prescribing ketamine and said that they risked being struck off. And I think that is changing because we're getting a serious conversation about the clinical benefits this brings. And of course, we have had this first approved therapy, S-ketamine, this nasal spray, which has highlighted the huge patient benefits to using ketamine for depression.
2: Now, another issue with accessing treatment is always cost. Um, In both Britain and America, ketamine treatments are very expensive, as you've outlined, especially compared to the price of ketamine for those using it recreationally. How do you think for patients with depression and other mental health conditions, how can access be improved?
0: Access is only going to be improved when public health services in Europe and elsewhere and medical insurers in the US start to take this treatment seriously and start offering it, start paying for it. One of the things I found really interesting was Dr. Bronner's in the US, this soap maker, they've made this available to their employees as a mental health benefit as part of their health plan. And so we may see in the US that some enlightened companies start making it available to their employees.
2: So it's quite clear that ketamine does have uses. It's available already in some places, but it's still in a bit of a medical establishment, no man's land. From your reporting, do you think that this is going to become a mainstream option for people um, in Britain and America anytime soon?
0: Yeah, I do, actually. I think the trends show that these clinics are growing and there is the expectation that they will spread. And
2: you're Just looking ahead, actually, there's a lot of research going on into the potential for all sorts of psychedelic substances, some of which are recreational drugs, and using them to treat mental health conditions. So not only ketamine, but things like psilocybin. LSD, uh, MDMA, I I mean, how would you characterize this particular moment in mental health care and the introductions of all of these new compounds to sort of try and treat these conditions?
0: Well, I think we're at the beginning of a really interesting period of time and we're seeing a sort of flourishing of research into substances that have powerful effects on the brain. And the research into these substances is kind of also related to the whole ketamine clinics issue as well. And the reason is that, you know, a lot of these therapies, whether it's LSD, MDMA, or psilocybin, they need close supervision when they're given. And they also need psychotherapy alongside, to sort of help you integrate the experiences that you're having while you're taking these drugs. And that seems to be what really helps people get well. And so if you're going to develop these psychedelic therapies, you need a way of giving them to lots of people, and that's where clinics come in. And if you think about it, these clinics that are offering ketamine today, they're really well placed to add a different drug to their menu of options when these have been through some kind of regulatory pathway that allows them to be used. So it
2: sounds to me like you see quite a positive future for these drugs.
0: I mean, I don't think the neuropharmacology field has been this excited since Prozac arrived. And that's one of the reasons why I'm working on a technology quarterly series of essays looking at drugs and treatments for the brain over the next few months. And that TQ will be out later this year in mid-September.
2: Natasha, are you going off to write about psychedelics because you need access to certain things to make you forget about COVID for the last two years?
0: Um, I'm certainly looking to psychedelics to take my mind off COVID but I won't be literally taking psychedelics I think that would be a bit of a bad idea Um, who knows what my piece might uh, look like it'd probably be you know 10,000 words of me saying hello tree hello flowers hello sky
2: (laughs) I don't think you need psychedelics for that that sounds brilliant (laughs) Natasha I can't wait to read that thank you very much for your time today thank you Alok our thanks also to Celia Morgan Rupert McShane Rory, and The Economist's Daniel Knowles. And thank you for listening to Babbage. If you like the show, you might also enjoy the latest series of another one of The Economist podcasts, The World Ahead. This week, host Tom Standage time travels to the future to find that large scale monitoring of people's health has shifted medicine from treatment to prevention. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Alok Chow, and in London, this is The Economist.